Lord, we thank you so much that you have, in fact, conquered the grave. We are grateful that uh, you have called us, that you have uh, somehow woven through life, through our families, through all the things that have uh, taken place in them, and you've brought your word to us. And in the miracle that we can't even grasp, we have been able to come to you, and now we know you. And so we just thank you for that. We thank you for the celebration of today, and we thank you that we can look in your word and ask you, how can we serve you and follow you in this day and age and in this life that you've given to us? And we ask you to bless this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the romance of life, it's good that we begin young. Because when you're young, everything looks like it is amazing, and it, it, it is, and it remains amazing, but you think of the joy of love. You get to that certain place, I, I'm sure some of the teens can appreciate this, and you don't have to right now, but still you look forward to the joy of love, and then after a while you realize that the joy of love could have also been titled the work of love. It's a lot of work to stay in love. Nobody ever tells you that, otherwise... I don't know what you would have done. You still do it. And family is like that, too. I mean, the joy. You look forward to the joy of having kids, right? And you realize that then after a while, what you really need is you need a book called The Art of War. One of the subtitles needs to be The Table with Toddlers. How do you deal with your toddlers at the table? Nobody tells you about that beforehand. We used to go out to a restaurant when we lived up in DeSoto called Grandy's. And uh, we had our little boy with us. And the girls were, the two older girls, they were very, they didn't make much of a mess. I always felt bad when we left there. We put Greg at the end of the table in a high chair. And there was like a ring of disaster of chicken parts all around him. If you stepped on them, you would have, probably hurt yourself. And it's like, nobody tells you about that part. So today in our message, we're talking about warring the good war. And I don't know that we have any braver warriors among us than our mothers. So I did not forget that it is in fact Mother's Day. Moms, hopefully there will be something in this message for you also. Uh, At at the beginning, I was supposed to have a message that was totally dedicated to Mother's Day, but now we're going to have to make this work. And again, warring the good war is something that mothers do. Now, in this message, I want to go back just a little bit, uh, because the thing is, is that in our text today, that's exactly what Paul is telling Timothy. He's telling him that he needs to be able to fight. Now, there is that famous verse in 2 Timothy that we all know where Paul says at the end of his life, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Uh, That's a great verse. Those are all athletic terms. In our verse today, what Paul is using is the word for war, the word for a soldier. And if you look at the word that is up there, and I mean, I don't know how I found this graphic, this is a form of the word that's used in our text, from which we also get strategy and tactics in the idea of cunning, in the idea of planning. And so what Timothy is doing here is very important. 
So here are some important dates for the book of First and Second Timothy. First and Second Timothy do not fall within the history of the book of Acts. Almost everyone concludes that this is after Paul has been released from his imprisonment in Rome. And so you see the dates up there. From 57 to 62, Paul was basically under house arrest, uh, first in Caesarea and then in Rome. And in Rome, he had a very fruitful time there. He wrote the prison epistles in Rome. And he says at the end of the book of Philippians, he says, Greeting also from those who are of Caesar's household. He had a very fruitful ministry. Much of the book of Acts is written in such a way, Luke wrote it in such a way that you could see that every time Christianity came under the scope of the Romans, they pronounced Christians innocent. See, because Judaism was an accepted religion within the Roman Empire. Christianity? Huh, not so much. But all you have to do is look at Paul's imprisonment. When they sent Paul finally to Caesar... It's like they're writing, we don't know what to say here. He's not guilty of anything. And that would have gone on Paul's record. The the whole ship story and what happened there. Hey, small Jewish guy, big help here. He basically saved us from going crazy. Gave him an A-plus for that. So when Paul gets to Rome, it's thought in maybe 62 that he's actually set free. Now, 62 AD turned out to be a really bad year for Nero. Nero was kind of an unstable guy anyway, but one of his biggest counselors, more stable counselors, died. There were some other things that happened that year. I won't go into the history, but it was a a bad year for him. In 64 is where, according to some historians, Nero set the, the city on fire and blamed it on the Christians. The history of First and Second Timothy, it is thought then, is between 64 and 67. Second Timothy, you can pretty much date at 67 A.D. because that's when Paul is put to death along with Peter. So the two books that we have here are very tense books. These are not relaxing things. This is not just Paul coaching Timothy and giving him some... Um, Advice. These two books have a very interesting, intense character about them. At the beginning, Paul says this to Timothy. Now, the beginning of 1 Timothy especially is a very unusual beginning. You see Paul saying some things here that he has said nowhere else. And everybody says, well, Galatians is the book where Paul kind of breaks protocol and he rushes right into it. No, look at 1 Timothy. He says... After the greeting, all of the stuff that Paul says here is different. He doesn't start out any book with saying, appointed an apostle by God our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope. He never says that. Every word in this letter is intentional for Timothy. Grace, mercy, and peace. He never says that in his opening. He means every word. And and Timothy would have known that this is being written especially to him. And then he starts out at the gun. He said, now... As I was going to Macedonia, remember, I charged you to remain at Ephesus because something happened at Ephesus. In Acts 20, as Paul is on his way to Jerusalem, he meets with the elders from Ephesus and he says to them, after I'm gone, wolves are going to rise up from the midst of you 
and they're going to cause great disturbance. Apparently, that's what happened, but the Romans had something to do with that too because there's nothing that allows the instability in a church to rise up better than to have outward forces attack the assembly. And this is apparently what happened at Ephesus. Ephesus was always known for being a powerhouse assembly, but it's very interesting that of all the churches Paul could have met with, on his way back in Ephesus, uh, in Acts chapter 20, he met with these elders. And he says he was on his way to Macedonia. Now, you see Macedonia up there. There are three assemblies that we know of. And Philippi, I would guess, is the one that was under attack because Philippi was a Roman colony. This was the place where Paul went, and they didn't have a synagogue because they didn't have ten Jewish men. So I'm just saying in all of this, the character of 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy, you can see that there's still this going on, but you sense from Paul, he's at the end of the road. He knows he's about to be graduated. Here at this point, the only thing he's telling Timothy to do is save the church. Something bad happened in Ephesus, and Timothy now, he may not have been ready for this assignment, but too bad for that. He has to go into Ephesus and save the church. So this kind of looks like what we imagine it to look like. Paul, the gray-haired man, balding, talking to Timothy, the man in his 30s, which is probably right. Two Caucasian dudes, probably not so much. But the point is, is that Timothy is being given apostolic authority. That means he sets up elders. Paul charges Timothy. That means he commands Timothy. This charge I commit to you. And later on it says, command them, charge them. And Timothy is supposed to do that. So Timothy is putting this church back together. So for me, personally... When I think of the tone of this letter, Paul coaching Timothy, it doesn't look so much like this, it looks more like this. This is Paul coaching Timothy. You need to get in there and you need to do it like this. And as soon as this portion finishes that I'm preaching on today, he starts going through the list one by one and helping Timothy to know what to do, how to fight this fight, how to war this war. Now, the point in all of this for us is that life hits us unexpectedly too. We aren't ready for a battle. We're not thinking that there's going to be a battle at work. We're not thinking there's going to be a battle in our marriage. We're not thinking there's going to be a battle at church. But oftentimes, those are the places where conflicts arise. And the question is, are we ready for that? And that's why... This letter is important. So the primary application for this this book is simply protecting the assembly, protecting the church, how to put the church together. And isn't it true that we get a lot of teaching out of this book? I mean, this is how we know how to find elders and how to find deacons and, and put people in appropriate serving relationships, all of those things. And that's in front of us yet. But for us personally, the secondary application is really, are you ready? Because like it or not, it comes. It comes when somebody in your family gets sick. It may be a spouse. It comes when you have a teenager who decides that they know better than everybody else. I mean, that just happens. 
It happens when things happen at church, and this should be the place of peace, but it is not always the place of peace. So, how do we ourselves get ready for things like that? And that is here what we're going to be looking at. So, if you have a Bible, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1, and we'll be starting in verse 18. He says, This charge I commit to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them, or inspired by them, you may wage the good warfare. The King James has the best translation of all on this, that you may war the good war. It's the same word, just used twice. Wage the good warfare, holding faith and a clear conscience. By rejecting conscience, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Among them, Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. And we'll look at that right toward the end. So three things here. He's telling Timothy, things have been said about you. Hold them fast and be inspired by them. Second, he's saying, wage the good warfare. What does that look like? And then, for balance in all of that, he says to him, um, holding faith in a good conscience. Why would that be important? And we'll be looking at those. So the first thing, then, is what was said about Timothy? And here's the answer to that. We don't know. We have no clue what was said to Timothy. But you know what? Paul alludes to it again in this letter. When you get to chapter 4, Paul is going to say to him, Remember, do not neglect the gift you have, which you received when the council of elders laid their hands upon you. Timothy received a spiritual empowerment for the task he was given. Paul says in 2 Timothy, he says, Rekindle the gift that you received when I laid my hands upon you. So apparently in the early church, commissioning people was an important thing. And in this commissioning, apparently prophecies were made regarding Timothy. And so Paul alludes to them one more time in this letter, and then when he gets into the next letter, he says, Remember, God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a power and love and self-control. And he says, Therefore do not be ashamed of testifying to our Lord. Because in that second letter, apparently the knife was swinging quite freely among Christians there. But the point is, Timothy was supposed to be inspired by these things. Before going into this battle, he was to remember what had been part of his upbringing, possibly, because Paul alludes to that in 2 Timothy, but this commissioning. So, the best I can do in applying it to us is just by asking, how have we been commissioned? I mean, before you go into war, Paul is saying it's really important here to remember what's been said about you and to be inspired by it. That's what the RSV says. Be inspired by what has been said about you. And the question is, what has God said about us? To every one of us. You know, if you look at the book of Ephesians, and again, all of these books are written basically God telling us how to live within the church. The book of Ephesians is amazing, right? I mean, the first three chapters 
are incredible in terms of what it says about us in God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. He destined us in love to be his sons through Christ Jesus, according to the mystery of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which is freely bestowed on us in the beloved. He gets into chapter 2 and he says, if I could remember what he says in chapter 2. In you he made alive when you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the principality and powers of the air, which are now at work in the lives of the disobedient. Among these we all once lived, following the desires of body and mind, and so we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God who is rich in mercy. What I'm saying is that this is written here for us in our commissioning to follow Christ. So read over chapters one through three. These are amazing chapters. I, you know, I, I think you should do it once a month. You know, don't wait on the one-year Bible. You got to wait a whole year. Read them once a month because that is your commissioning. That is God telling you how much He loves you and what you have inherited in the Son. And based on that inheritance, shouldn't you be a little bit inspired? Maybe that much inspired. I mean, some of us who live on the edge where, you know, like, woo, you know, kind of like, wow, it's amazing stuff that is supposed to generate something within our hearts and make us ready to fight right alongside our Lord. Now look at Matthew chapter 5. The thing I like about Matthew chapter 5 is that Matthew chapter 5 is written right after Jesus chooses the 12 disciples. So, and you can go through here and you can see how Jesus is telling his disciples, this is what is going to be true of you. This is what you need to do. And they can do it because they belong to God, right? But when you get into chapter 6, it says in verse 31, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Now, what's interesting is that when Jesus sends them out in twos, he says to them, Don't take any money with you. Because a worker deserves his wages, and God is going to take care of you. That's the application of what he says here. Do you know that God would take care of you? Now, the context is obviously reaching out to lost people and going out kind of as missionaries. But do you realize that God has said he will take care of you? Your job isn't an illusion. Otherwise, you'd probably have more joy there. But it's actually only the means that he uses. He could take care of you any way he wanted to. How do you take care of six million people in the desert? That is impossible, right? Imagine the city of New York out in the Mojave Desert. How are you going to supply food for all these people? God didn't even break a sweat. And he promises he will take care of you that same way. Is that something to be inspired of? 
when you're walking into the battle, will God really take care of me if something blows up at work or if something blows up over here and I have to take a stand for Jesus Christ? Can He do it? Oh, oh, yeah, if you believe that. And he goes on in chapter 7. In verse 7, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good gifts to those who ask him? That is a promise. Mom, if your kid asks for bread, you give him, a, give him a stone? Do you play practical jokes on your kid? No. I mean, even dads, as evil as we are, or hard as we are. You know, I mean, my heart, I, I would give my kids anything if I had the means to do it. Maybe that's wrong too, right? But I mean... Don't you, as a parent, doesn't your heart go out to your kids? Wouldn't you give them exactly what they need? The Father has this much love for us that He will give us all that we need when we ask the caveat here that I have read over and over again from people far wiser than I am is that we are employed in being witnesses for Christ. This is not just for us, but certainly for the work that we do if we're following Christ in the harvest. Now, that was at the beginning of the disciples being called. Let's look what it looked like just before Jesus died, the day before he died. So look at John chapter 14. Oh, actually, John chapter 15. In, in verse 9, or actually in verse 7, uh, it says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. That's a promise. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this is my Father glorified. Verse 16 of chapter 15, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide and that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you that you love one another. And it goes on and on. Jesus kept telling them, you need to ask in my name, and if you ask in my name, I will give it. And I'm saying that this is a promise that he has for all of us. And this is what Timothy had, and this is what was supposed to inspire him. God would never fail Timothy. Sometimes it may not look like things would be going in the right direction, but he would never, ever Abandon Timothy. You know, our commission under our Lord, these promises are like his stamp, his seal on what we do. When we bring our requests before him, it says that he acknowledges, he hears our requests, and they're stamped with his royal stamp of us being sons of God, 
along with our Lord Jesus Christ and involved in his service, wouldn't it be something if you had a king's seal? And if you wrote something out, say the presidential seal, and you wrote it out and you said, I need this, this, and this, and you hit it with that seal, that it would be delivered. Wow, that would be like way too heady for me. But that's what God is saying. If you are, as Timothy is in this place, involved in reaching out, here's what I'm going to do. I am going to stamp whatever you send. And my experience in so many churches is that we ask almost nothing of God. We ask him almost nothing. He's willing to do great and amazing things, far more abundantly than all we can ask or think. And we don't even know sometimes where the stamp is. I remember as a kid seeing this Disney movie or Disney thing. And what it was, was uh, it was kind of the prince and the pauper where two people switch places. And this little king, kid becomes king. Eventually, the whole kingdom is kind of turned on its head because they don't know where the the royal seal is. Because when the kid who was a king took off and you know was having a fun life and everything, he left the royal seal, but he didn't know what the other kid was going to do with it. So when they finally get everything back together and the two twins are basically looking at each other, the, the one who's the real king, he says, what did you do with the royal seal? You know, it's like you didn't realize the power you had with that. Oh, he said... Oh, you mean that thing that looks like a hammer? And he goes up and he opens the front of this knight and he reaches in there and he pulls it out. And he says, why did you put it in there? He said, I was using that as a nutcracker. You know, so when they brought walnuts there, you know, it was kind of too massive for the walnuts. But the point was he didn't realize what he had. And I think, too, we do not realize what we have, what God is saying, what our Lord is saying in those verses. Before we go into any battle, we have been given guarantees of resources. And we are to be inspired. Every word that Jesus is saying there is prophetic because it hasn't happened yet. And it can happen in our lives if we're willing to do it. You know, you guys read these missionary letters, right? Now, we just got one from um, uh, the Matthews. And it was, I, mean, I saw, you know, you could see the building there and everything. And see, here's what we think. That stuff only happens there. It just doesn't happen here. When I was a missionary, I saw stuff like that happen too. It's you're out on the line. I mean, you are begging God for anything that he can do for you. And God delivers in way. But here's where I'm going with all of that. He can do it right here too. But the question is, are we asking, seeking, knocking? Are we begging? Are we crying out to God? Because if we don't, when Jesus gives a little parable and he says, do you not think that when you cry out to God, that your Father won't hear it immediately and start working toward you and deliver you and vindicate you? Of course he will. He says, but when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And what he means by faith is, will there be crying out? Or will you be so sufficient? I mean, we just, you know, we, it, 
this emotional extremism to me. It, uh, I, I, yeah, I, I just don't need that. Well, maybe you do if you're in a war. And so what Paul is saying to Timothy here is that if you're in this war, the first thing you have to do is you have to be inspired by what has been said over you. And Jesus has said so much over us that we really need to take to heart. We need to start begging him for things that have to do with the harvest, that have to do with our neighbors, that have to do with our community, that have to do with something. Because I believe still that the fields are white for harvest. And in Timothy's fight here, he needs the courage and the wherewithal to put this church back together at Ephesus. And he goes on here, and he says, that probably would have been a good verse to memorize too. This charge I commit to you, Timothy, in accordance with the divine utterances that were said over you, that you are to wage the good warfare, keeping faith and a good conscience. Wage the good warfare. So what does it mean to do this kind of work? Now, this is very interesting because we don't even know what it is yet, but it's going to start in the next verse, and it's going to continue all through the letter. And it's very strategic, everything that Paul tells Timothy. It's basically, the next thing out of the bag is, how should men and women live in their communities? What should be their stance? And right away you get the gospel in chapter 2. It's there in the first few verses. Live quiet, respectful lives, for this is good in the sight of God our Savior, who desires everyone to be saved. So here's how men should act. Here's how women should act. Men should quit griping about the government. Men. And they should pray for those leaders so that we can live quiet and peaceable lives. They should pray lifting holy hands. We're asking God to shake the world. We're not asking the U.S. government to shake the world. They're doing a bad job of that anyway. We're asking God to shake the world. So men, lift holy hands. Stop griping. Women. And this is really, you know, I mean, I don't want to maybe venture into this too much, but he tells women how to live. But here's the genius of that. This is about all that Paul is going to tell Timothy in chapter in uh, in First Timothy. But when he gets to Titus, he expands what women's ministry looks like in Titus two four. How the older women should care for the younger women and teach them. This is something more than what takes place over a cup of coffee. And so often in Titus, he's telling Titus for the people to be ready to do good deeds. Because why? In that kind of a society, that's how you walked into other people's lives. Somebody got sick, you brought them something. Who has the best radar for that, a man or a woman? Hands down, it's a woman. More in touch with their community. They've got more connections between both halves of the brain. Anyway, the thing is, Paul starts going through this checklist until you get to chapter 3, and we know it's in chapter 3 with elders and deacons. But here's what I want to say to us. If having a strategy was important for Timothy, it's just as important for us. How do you become a good parent? There's a lot of stuff in this book to help you outline a strategy. How do you become a good person at work? There's some things at the end of Timothy, actually, that have to do with the workplace. 
the thing is, we need to talk or we need to think strategically about the life that God has put us into. We need to understand what are the different things that God would have us do. And there's a lot that comes right out of the Word of God for that. The stories of the Old Testament, uh, looking at Ruth, looking at um, Boaz, looking at David, that, that isn't accidental stuff. That's stuff that we should know. And it should be able to be used by the Holy Spirit to help us think of a spiritual strategy. But it's more than that, isn't it? Because there are some things that we won't hear until 2 Timothy where Paul says, Now, you have been trained. How about us? Where does our training come from? Do we seek help? Uh, that's kind of a touchy point. You know, some of us do, some of us don't. Some of us think if we look out to the world, we get a book on, uh, on one thing or another, then we're cutting God short, and that's not true at all. If you want to get better at something, you read books, good books, that will help you. Um, how much of yourself do you put into that? How much of yourself do you put into personal development? Personal development like reading the Bible yourself or memorizing verses or being involved in other ministries. All things through which the Lord changes you and helps you. See, there's a strategy involved in this warfare. A lot of us, it isn't that we plan to fail, we just fail to plan. We don't sit down and take our lives and lay them out before the Lord and say, okay, Lord, I've got this time here. What could I be doing? What should I be doing? What should I be praying for? You're asking me, well, wow, Lord, if I had the time, this is what I'd like to be doing. Is there a way that you can help me do that? To get involved in that, to learn about that, to read that book, to be involved in that thing. I think that some of this involves prayers where we put ourselves out at the end of our faith. You know, it's just like exercise. Exercise is basically causing your muscles to do some things that actually hurt them. But in doing that, that hurting, that exercise actually builds up the muscle. And for a lot of Christians, we don't really exercise our faith. We don't put ourselves out there having to do something. We don't challenge ourselves to learn something that's maybe a little bit hard for us. There's a strategy involved in this warfare because what I find time after time is that if a person gets in trouble, they're not ready for it at all. So, how are you in your Bible reading? Well, you know, uh, not very regular. Wow, we've got to build that one up. So you're really not ready for this. It's like asking somebody to run a marathon, you know, and the only running they do is basically from the couch to the refrigerator. You're not ready. But if you're called on to be ready, are you ready? And see, spiritually speaking, because we know the world that we live in, we should be ready. Every day of our lives should be spent before the Lord and we should be getting ready in Him so that when He calls us, we can go. There's a guy named, well, I won't even tell you what his name is. So Israel's going into battle. And Moses has made all sorts of great promises that when you go into this battle, God is going to expand your coast. He's going to give you land. And you're going to be victorious as you go out there. 
And I'm sure on that battle line, all these guys are standing there and they're saying, that's what I want. If God's with us, we're going to win. And not only that, we can get a, I, I can have a town named after me. And, and we're going to go out there and we're, you know, because he says he's going to do that. And he did. God's, God said he would do that. But there's one guy standing there, I know of, who had a really hard upbringing. A really hard upbringing. And so hard that his other brothers and sisters kind of looked at him with a little bit of disdain. But it was a thing that brought him closer to God. And he had one advantage over his brothers and over maybe every other man, almost every other man standing on that line, is he knew how to cry out to God. And the way he cried out to God was using God's promises. And as he's standing there, getting ready for battle, he says to God, Oh, that you would bless me indeed, and enlarge my coast, and that your hand would be with me, and that you would keep me from evil, that it might not grieve me. And it says, God gave Jabez everything that he asked for. He did it in a particular way. He wasn't just ready for battle physically, he was ready for battle spiritually. Because things in his life forced him to God. And I think Timothy is ready for battle here. He just doesn't know it because he is going to come into some things that are way over his head. Paul is going to have to tell him, charge him, command him not to lay hands on anybody too quickly. Because when you're in need, there's that there's that that desire to do that. You, you, you want somebody in the ministry, but you don't know them well enough. Paul says, don't do that. But then he says, after that, he says, and you're still going to make mistakes. And he says, and by the way, use a little bit of wine, no longer just water, but a little bit of wine for your stomach and your frequent ailments. If you're looking at me, have, if you're asking me, having been a pastor for as many years as I've been, it was not his stomach that was the problem. It was his head. Because you go over every decision, you go over every conflict until it drives you crazy and you can't sleep at night. Paul is telling Timothy, you're not going to be perfect. Paul is ministering Timothy on several levels here. But Timothy is ready for the fight. And that's what comes next in this book. Now, the last thing I want to say here is really easy. There's a bunch of things. Just touch on this for a second. Because Paul says... That God's grace overflowed for him, his spiritual enabling. God's grace overflowed for me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Now, I've tried to memorize that verse. And the genius of me trying to memorize anything is that I keep forgetting it. So I have to go over and over and over. And it occurred to me, probably on about the 95th time, that he isn't just throwing these words out. He's saying, this was God's spiritual enablement to me. He gave me faith. He gave me faith on steroids. And when you see Paul, he's got faith. He's ready to walk into any situation. And he's ready to say whatever God wants him to say. That's faith. And faith alone is not enough. He gave him love. It's where it says the Spirit pours God's love into our hearts. Paul received a bolus, an extra portion of understanding not only God's love, but being able to dispense God's love. But at this particular place, I think what he's telling Timothy is he, he says, keeping faith in a good conscience. 
Because you can have all of that power, and you can have all that ability, and you can believe that God has got your back. But you can still mess up. And when it talks about Hymenaeus and Alexander, these guys are actually, well, Hymenaeus is a repeat offender. Because when you get to 2 Timothy, now Hymenaeus is with Philetus. And they're telling everybody that the resurrection has already taken place. But these guys were not there. They were just men that Timothy knew. The point being is that there's something very particular about our balance in any kind of fight, in any kind of challenge. It's keeping faith. What is faith? Well, actually, faith is everything. I mean, it's everything we know about Jesus. It's everything we know about what's going on in this world. It is all of this information that we can't possibly keep in solution in our mind, and it's acting on it. Or at least, as he says in um, Philippians, living according to what we have attained. What do you understand about Jesus Christ What do you understand about the world that we're living in? What do you understand about the church? What do you understand about what God would love your conduct to look like? And you may not understand everything because nobody does. But you need to live according to it. Because we're not just talking about oddballs here. It'd be too easy to run over to uh, talk about stories of fallen Christians. Obviously, they violated their consciences. Obviously, they violated what they knew was true of faith, and they've shipwrecked their faith. Very simply, it'll no longer float. It no longer works. He's saying, if you know what to do, you should do it. If you know what to do, do it. If you're in a given situation, and God says, this is what you should do, do it. If you don't, what you do is you train yourself to stop hearing God's voice. You train yourself to ignore God. If God says that the church is to reach lost people, do it. Don't train yourself. Don't redefine the church. Don't make yourself think it's okay that nobody comes to Christ here and say, ah. Do it. Otherwise, you're violating your own conscience. You're doing something with the faith and the Word of God you shouldn't do. Men, if you're supposed to be a certain way with your wife in any kind of situation and you don't do it, you're violating faith in your conscience because that's what Jesus Christ wants you to do. Wives, it's the same thing. Our faith is a very tender, powerful component. But as soon as we learn to disregard it, we get ourselves into all kinds of trouble. Trouble God doesn't want us to be in. And the thing is, for Timothy, for anybody to fight, when you think of the armor of God, the, um, the girdle of truth, are you violated in truth? Well, you can't fight. The breastplate of righteousness, are you violated in your righteousness, living rightly before God? Well, you can't fight. Because the minute you get in, and it really counts, Satan can take you out so easy. Are your feet shod with the equipment of the gospel of peace? If they're not, you are simply a moving object, and you will be hit. 
All of these things are important, but he boils it down for Timothy here by just saying this. Guard your faith. Do not violate your faith. Keep it with a clear conscience, and you'll be strong. You won't be perfect, but you'll be strong going through these things. So the three things, just to go back, is first of all, remember what God has spoken over you. What has God spoken over this church? Are those promises all valid for this church? Ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and the door will be open for you. God's sitting on the edge of his throne, wanting to pour things out. Of course it is. Remember that and be inspired by it. Wage a good warfare. It isn't just a matter of heart. It's a matter of strategy. It's a matter of taking what God says seriously. It's a matter of acquiring information and being as wise as you can walking into this thing. And that kind of falls on us to equip ourselves. The church can equip us too. It should be equipping us in certain ways. But if it's just left to you, you got to do it. And then the last thing is whatever God tells you, whatever you understand about the faith, live that. Don't train yourself. Don't let Satan scare you into denying what is so true and what God is ready to bless if you just walk with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. You have given us a a gift. You have given us a life that isn't supposed to be all joy, but it's supposed to be seeing your blessing over and over and over and over and over again. Um, You want to bless us so much. You want to pour your love out on us so much. You want to see us have to fight, but then to prove your great salvation and to prove what you're willing to do. Help us to become those kinds of people who are who will dare, because of what our Lord did for us, to dare to go out and to live this faith and to fight this battle and to take hold of every promise you've made to us so that you will be glorified by seeing lost people saved and disciples made who will make disciples. Amen.